Welcome to The Dirt, where we discuss all things related to the environment and environmental justice, often with a focus on North Carolina. We are broadcasting from historic WSHA 88.9 FM in downtown Raleigh. In studio with me today is your Upper Noose Riverkeeper, Matthew Starr. Welcome to the show, Matthew. Thanks for having me. It's good to finally get you on here. Uh, quick, give me a, you're the riverkeeper, give me a, a river fact. Yeah, the Noose River, uh, where it empties into the Pamlico Sound after its 248-mile journey, is the widest river in the United States. The widest river in the United States. Okay, that's a pretty fun fact. Yeah. Um, I'm going to keep quizzing you. Three words. <laughs> All right, I'm ready. Three I words. I studied. What's the most important thing listeners should be thinking about right now? Vote in November. Plain and simple. You want to protect the environment? Vote in November. Okay, that's good. So, speaking of voting in November and, and lawmakers, just a few blocks uh, from here, down past the end of Fayetteville Street, the North Carolina General Assembly is gathered for uh, their biennial short session. Um, for those who don't know, biennial is something that happens every other year, as opposed to biannual, which is something that happens twice in one year. That's a fun fact for you. Uh, although you uh, oh, you can bet <laughs> that, um, you know, these guys, this gerrymandered band of, of folks will probably come back for more than one session after this short session is over. They tend if, to If do that. the past is any indication of the future, they'll, they'll be back many times. I'm already, <laughs> yeah, I'm already hearing rumors about plans for a special session closer to the election in November in which, you know, they might possibly try to put some constitutional amendments uh, on the ballot in November, and but they want to do it closer to the election maybe to try and, you know, influence the results there. I don't know. We'll see. But yeah, if the pass is any indication, we can expect more of that. Uh, so we're going to talk about what's going on in the session later with you and and we'll also have um grady mccauley the policy director of conservation network on to discuss some things that are happening there some clean water um elements being debated uh gen x is being debated uh, a bill that would help get a well (laughs) they say that it would help get a hold on uh gen x contamination that actually would not do that but we'll talk about that and speaking of gen x just in the news this morning Kim Ors, which is one of the primary uh, producers of Gen X, uh, the, the, the main culprit when it comes to polluting the Cape Fear River with Gen X, uh, announced that they are partnering with the National Hockey League to identify uh, sustainable alternatives for North American ice rinks. Uh, for people who aren't familiar with the ice rink uh, situation in North America right now, which probably many of you are not, uh, Currently, uh, mostly uh, there are 4,800 indoor ice rinks in, in North America. They're all mostly really, really old, and the average age is over 30 years old. And they're all operating with a kind of Freon-based uh, refrigeration system. Uh, EPA has mandated that uh, Freon R22, ha- you cannot produce or import it into the United States after 2020. And so all of these uh, ice rink operators are, you know, trying to come up with new alternatives for what's going to replace Freon, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it's surprising to me that they would be teaming up with Kimors, uh, which is a, a known bad actor, a spinoff from DuPont Chemical uh, that, 
lied to the public and everyone else about things that they were putting in our water for decades and decades and decades. Um, so kind of disappointing news to hear that the NHL, I'd really love to hear what the Carolina Hurricanes think about this partnership, uh, given, yeah. you know, given that this is a huge issue in the state of North Carolina. Uh, and speaking of perfluorinated compounds like Gen X, there's a summit taking place in Washington, D.C. around uh, perfluorinated compounds, PFAS. Uh, there's some breaking news related to that that we'll get into later as well. Um, but first, I want to talk for just a brief moment about salamanders. If yeah, I love salamanders. Okay. Well, uh, there was a recent study, uh, a survey of Chinese giant salamanders. And there are these salamanders in China. There are, uh, the species is like 170 million years old. And they are huge. I mean, they're like six yeah. feet, six feet I mean, long. Massive. Yeah, ma- just, you know, gigantic. And they are on the brink, beyond the brink of extinction at this point. Uh, they, an international team of researchers just did a, a pretty exhaustive survey. And I think they found 24 left in the wild. And the ones that they found, they they think may have been released from farms or some other sort of captive um, situation. So there might not be any of these species left in the wild. Uh, I bring that up just because it's, you know, the Smithsonian uh, is reporting about it today. And it's just a really interesting story. It's this, I love learning about new creatures and things like that. And salamanders is kind of a special, yeah. uh, there's a special place in North Carolina for salamanders. There's a real connection there. I mean, uh, salamanders, uh, diversity of salamanders is the highest. North Carolina has the highest diversity of salamanders anywhere else in the world. Um, we have great, very adorable, cute salamander species as we've talked about before on this program the new super water dog is a fully aquatic salamander and they're just they're just really cool i mean they're they're like birds there's just so many different varieties different colors different sizes that i mean salamanders are are really really cool species and they tend to be kind of more sensitive species are kind of the carries in the coal mine with regard to pollution and how it's impacting an ecosystem. So, you know, you can look at the decline or the health of a salamander population and kind of get a gauge on what we're putting into the water and what we're doing to the environment. And, um, yeah. So, anyways, check out Smithsonian.com if you want to see some pictures of this really cute, gigantic salamander. It's kind of like a big slimy puppy. North Carolina does even have a an official state salamander the uh, marbled salamander so you're full of fun facts yeah I, I'm, i told you i studied i'm ready well anyways back to uh, other things the cooper administration um introduced a new environmental justice council we're going to talk about that uh, but before we get into that i caught up with uh sujatha bergen at the national Re- natural resources defense council uh to talk about uh paint strippers, toxic paint strippers being sold at Lowe's. Deadly toxic paint strippers. If you're a do-it-yourselfer, you need to pay attention uh, to this interview. I'm going to play it for you right now. Methylene chloride, let's let's start there. Uh, how dangerous is it? Tell me about it. Sure. Methylene chloride is a primary ingredient in lots of paint strippers and coatings. And it's very easy to inhale, uh, in part because it's odorless. So you don't know if you're being exposed to it uh, at significant levels. And the problem is that once it's in your body, it turns to carbon monoxide. And so you can suffocate very quickly. It can cause heart attacks. 
and then also uh, it's a probable human carcinogen as well. So that's very not good. Um, what, uh, what, where are these? So I know that you've got the, the campaign is focused on Lowe's and um, encouraging them to get methylene chloride products off their shelves. Is it just Lowe's? Are there other stores? Where can this be found? Where should be people be looking out for this kind of product? Yeah, well, I think the best thing that we can advise consumers is before you buy a paint stripper, check its ingredients list and check if it includes methylene chloride. And if it does, our advice is not to buy it. Uh, there are safer alternatives uh, out there. There's mechanical methods like blasting, heat, uh, sanding. You can also use uh, benzyl alcohol formations and dibasic esters. Uh, some of these will take longer than methylene chloride, but it's worth it given the high risk of uh, of exposure and, and serious harm. I should add, too, that methylene chloride uh, poses a particular risk to folks who are using uh, the chemical to refinish a bathtub or a floor because the chemical sinks. Uh, and so if you're crouched on the floor working with it and... Uh, and the chemical is staying close to the ground, your exposure levels are even higher. So many of the deaths that we've seen are of people who have been refinishing bathtubs or floors uh, or low-lying surfaces. And I imagine bathrooms are less ventilated typically than a garage or something else might be as well. Um, how many people? How many people have died? How deadly exactly is this? So more than 60 people have died in the United States since 1980. Uh, and ever since uh, the U.S. EPA considered banning uh, this substance, four people have died. Uh, and I guess if you're looking at highway accidents, that's not a big number. But it's a big number when you think of a, a product that people are just walking into their uh, into their local hardware store or their local hardware chain, just pulling it off the shelves. Uh, you know, it's hard to uh, imagine another product that would still be on the shelves uh, if you um, if it had caused that many deaths. Yeah. So tell me about why it's why why the government is is even letting it remain on the shelves. You mentioned that there was a, a an attempt at a ban or considered a ban by the EPA. Yeah, so Europe has had banned uh, methylene chloride paint strippers, which is great. Uh, and the U.S. EPA undertook a review of the dangers of, uh, of this chemical in 2016. And in 2017 decided, yeah, we've got to ban this stuff. So they issued a proposed rule uh, that would have banned the sale of methylene chloride paint strippers in, in the U.S., that was under the Obama administration. Unfortunately, under the new administration and Secretary Pruitt, that uh, that ban was shelved uh, earlier this year. They're now making giving some indication that they may move on it, but they've given no no uh, timeline or no sense of whether it'll actually be a, a full ban that will protect consumers. Uh, so it's very unfortunate. Uh, that we haven't actually decided to protect consumers uh, at the national level. So in the meantime, we're asking retailers to step up and take action and protect their customers from this dangerous chemical. Uh, we're uh, asking Lowe's, but then also would love to see all other uh, retailers that sell these products to pull them from their shelves as well. 
Uh, that includes Home Depot, Walmart, uh, and your local uh, hardware store as well. It's just not worth it to sell something to a customer that might kill them. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's just hard to wrap your mind around going into, you know, with a do-it-yourself project in mind and, you know, picking something up that's going to lead to your death. It's just unfathomable. Um, Lowe's is headquartered down here in North Carolina and um, Morrisville, North Carolina. And I understand they've got a shareholder meeting coming up shortly. Tell me a little bit about whether methylene chloride is going to come up there. Yeah, so there's a shareholder meeting uh, down in Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, uh, Lowe's headquartered nearby in Monroeville, I believe. And uh, we'll be there with a set of organizations and folks that are very concerned about this chemical. Uh, Also joining us will be uh, the mother of one of the young men who was recently killed uh, by using this chemical. Uh, um, And so it should be a fairly emotional uh, presentation will be presenting we'll be asking the CEO and the board uh, directly at the shareholder meeting uh, if they plan to remove this chemical from their shelves uh, and we also are planning to deliver 120,000 public comments that have been generated in just a few weeks uh, by uh, email action alerts and uh, just uh, change.org, uh, change.org petition. Uh, so there's been a big response there. Uh, so we'll be uh, presenting those uh, to the CEO. Uh, and then prior to the uh, shareholder meeting, we'll be holding a press conference as well that'll identify some of the specific products that folks should be uh, wary of. So, yeah, so we are definitely going to make the point uh, to the lowest folks that this stuff shouldn't be on the shelves and should be removed. And we hope that they'll listen yeah what are your what are your expectations there is there a record of them doing this kind of thing do you have any hopes that they'll actually listen they have Lowe's has actually responded uh, to requests from the environmental community in the past they removed uh, chemicals called uh, uh, plants and and uh, pesticides called neonics from their shelves a few years ago which are uh, deadly to bees uh, and pollinators. And so they were responsive to the environmental community at that point. They also uh, have looked at other chemicals. And so they do have they do have a history of responding to some, at least some requests from the environmental community. We think that this, this uh, the methylene chloride is a slam dunk for them. Uh, there's really, it's really hard to imagine uh, that this, that this one category of product is such an income generator that it's worth all of the risk that it generates, both in terms of the health of their customers and also the reputational risk, the brand risk, uh, I would imagine liability. Uh, so um, we we think that Lowe's will ultimately do the, the right thing, and we just hope that they do it before there are more, more deaths. Is there any hope of a ban at the state level from in North Carolina or, or anywhere else? Is that something that's at play? California is looking into what to do about these. Uh, their uh, Department of Toxic Substance Control, DTSD, uh, has asked for public comments on uh, on these products. Uh, unfortunately, their process is just very slow. And so uh, our best hope for regulation is at the national level at this moment in time. But other places, there's uh, a patchwork of other uh, rules in states. So D.C. 
uh, bans the use of methane chloride. Um, paint strippers to remove graffiti, and other states have other rules. Uh, so there, are, some states have taken action, um, but to really provide full protection, we need something at the federal level. That makes sense to me. And in the meantime, everyone can uh, try to avoid these products if they can and be vigilant uh, when they're at their hardware stores. Um, thank you. Yeah, and I just want to... Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I just wanted to add that regular respirators, so the respirators you usually wear when you paint, don't work with this chemical. That's another reason it's been so deadly. So if you see, even next to those those products, a display of of uh, of respirators that will not protect you. Uh, and actually, folks who have died using this uh, chemical have been wearing those standard respirators. In order to use methylene chloride safely, you actually have to have an external air source. So something that's pumping air in from outside uh, into your mask. It's it's a really big apparatus, um, and uh, and that's another reason we think that this shouldn't be available just on a consumer basis because you need a need a pretty pretty extensive safeguards to use it uh, yeah, wow. safely. So who has that? No. Yeah. So folks should yeah. So folks should uh, check out the label, see if it says methane chloride, and if it does, don't buy it. Okay. Well, that sounds good. Uh, thank you so much, Rosada, for joining us. Um, and good luck at the shareholder meeting. Thank you very much. Thanks for your time. Yeah, have a good one. You are listening to The Dirt on WSHAFM. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Dirt. Earlier this month, the North Carolina Department of Environmental Quality held a ceremony to introduce the new Environmental Justice and Equity Advisory Board. We were there. It was a great event uh, at the agency's building, which they call the, the quote, People's Environmental House. Uh, and inside that building is what is known as Green Square Lobby, which is this big open kind of white space with wood accents, huge windows allowing a lot of sunlight to pour into the space. And they, this is where they held their ceremony. So the members of this new council were arranged in tiered seating up at the front uh, facing a packed crowd. Uh, and there was a podium there where a few people, few people spoke, including Michael Regan, who was the secretary of DEQ. Uh, there was a crowd standing in back. There was a crowd looking down over the railing from the second floor. And there were journalists, community members, environmental advocates there. The energy was very positive, uh, which is something that you cannot often say uh, when talking about environmental justice in uh, in the state of North Carolina. So the advisory board is made up of 16 people, 16 members selected from across the state, and it is chaired by Dr. Jim Johnson, Jr., who is a professor at UNC Chapel Hill. He's also the director of the Urban Investment Strategy Center at the Frank Hawkins Keenan Institute of Private Enterprise. Uh, for those unfamiliar with him and his work, his research has examined the causes and consequences of growing inequality in America and has focused on entrepreneurial approaches to poverty alleviation, job creation, community development. 
the the panel also the council also includes a lot of advocates that are well known in the environmental justice circles. Naima Muhammad, who's the force behind the Environmental Justice Network, is on there. North Carolina Conservation Network's own Jamie Cole is on there. There's a lot of great folks. Um, ultimately, this is a project of Secretary Regan and the Cooper administration. It's an effort to demonstrate that environmental justice is a priority for the agency. And uh, that's not an easy task in a state where environmental racism has been practiced so prolifically by the government. We've discussed on this show the North Carolina government's infamous uh, historic decision to site a PCB landfill in a predominantly black uh, county, Warren County, 40 years ago. Uh, but the legacy of those kinds of injustices have persisted into more recent years. It was just the McCrory administration's DEQ that was sued under Title VI of the Civil Rights Act for allowing industrial swine facilities to operate with inadequate, outdated uh, systems of controlling the hog waste, which resulted in disproportionate impact on black, Latinx, indigenous communities in eastern North Carolina. Uh, DEQ just reached a settlement with some of those communities the same week that the Environmental Justice Advisory Board was introduced. So I'm sure that there was some sort of calculation there, but, you know, trying to send a signal that they're going to be good on this issue. Um, According to DEQ, the group has been formed to, quote, assist the department in achieving and maintaining the fair and equal treatment and meaningful involvement of North Carolinians, regardless of where they live, their race, religion, or income, with respect to the development, implementation, and enforcement of environmental laws, regulations, and policies. And yet, I think there are questions about how much real power or influence, if any, this board will have over decision-making at DEQ. And uh, despite the formation of this body, uh, which was at the early part of the month, Cooper's DEQ has now also been sued under Title VI of the Civil Rights Act related to its uh, approval of the Atlantic Coast Pipeline, uh, which is slated to be constructed through low-wealth communities in East North Carolina, through uh, historic communities of color, through some of the most populous indigenous communities in the state. Um, so questions remain, but the event was great. And here are some of the sounds and speakers, uh, if you were unable to be there. Great job of doing the opening ceremony. Our tribe is a small tribe. We have about 4,000 citizens, but we do a lot. We do a lot in our community to help not just our citizens in our territorial lands, but everybody who lives there. That's what we're here for, to help each other and to be there for people. I also serve on the Commission on Indian Affairs, and we have our executive director here, Mr. Greg Richardson, who's also from my tribe. And I serve as the chairman of the Cultural and Religion Committee and also the Environmental Justice Committee. So being appointed today to this board is a special thing for me. It's a little Indian boy that grew up on a farm that always took care of things because he was taught that and the ways of our Creator, and the ways of protecting our Mother Earth and our Father Sky. That's who we are. We're put on Earth to live, but we're put here to take care of. We believe that we own nothing. Land, stuff like that. How can you own things when Creator put it here for you to take care of? And that's our job. That's our job. Today, I'm going to sing you a song, and what I'm going to sing you is like, if you've ever been to a powwow, which we just had our powwow a couple weeks ago, you have a flag song, you have a recognition song, you have an honor song, 
And that's what I'm saying for you today because that's what I was taught. My name is Jeff Anstead, and the family I come from is a, is a strong family who's always been in Indian politics and, and, and leaders in our tribe, and that's who I am. I want to thank the rest of the tribes that's here today. Uh, thank you for coming out. Thank, uh, thank Joey Isle, who's a representative from the Eastern Band. Thank him so much. And to everybody here, thank you for coming today, and I hope you enjoy. Before I leave up here, I want to share something with you from Chief Dan George. The time will soon be here when my grandchildren will long for the cry of a loon, the flash of a salmon, the whisper of a spruce needle, on the screech of an eagle, or the screech of an eagle. But he will not make friends with any of these creatures, and when his heart aches and with longing, he will curse me. Have I done all to keep the air fresh? Have I cared enough about the water? Have I left the eagle to soar in freedom? Have I done everything I could to earn my grandchild's fondness? Thank you very much. Bila Hope to everyone here. After that moving introduction from Mr. Anstead, uh, we were able to hear from the vice chair of the new advisory board, Dr. Marion Johnson Thompson. Here are just a few seconds of her remarks. As a seasoned transplant to North Carolina, I've spent over 25 years in this great state and for most of this time, I've worked locally and nationally towards addressing the needs of those who traditionally have been underserved, disproportionately represented, and overly impacted by negative environmental influences. To have an appointed state committee 
consisting of such a diverse group of individuals representing racial and ethnic minorities, environmental and health scientists, health professionals, clergy, academia, the legal community, undeserved groups, activists, policymakers, educators, and private sector representatives is indicative of our state's leaders commitment to addressing environmental justice and equity. And Next, we heard from the chair of the new advisory board, Dr. Jim Johnson, Jr. Here is a short excerpt from his remarks. To my fellow advisory board members, I want to take this opportunity in my capacity as chair to both welcome and thank you for agreeing to serve our state in this capacity. To my way of thinking, our work at its core is about maintaining and enhancing North Carolina's competitiveness in the global marketplace. Research confirms that firms and people are consumers of place. Today, quality of life factors are far more important than traditional drivers of economic development in locational decisions of both firms and individuals and families. Communities that pursue equitable and inclusive economic land use and environmental policies, practices, and procedures are far more attractive and therefore, I would argue, competitive than communities that do not embrace this paradigm shift. At both the state and community levels, branding is increasingly used as an economic development marketing tool. From existing research, we know that communities that strategically position themselves in the economic development marketplace as sustainable places to live and do business are more likely to be successful engines of innovation, business development, and employment growth. So the question... And finally, we heard from Secretary Michael Regan himself. Here are just a few minutes of his remarks. This mission for me is just as much personal as it is a professional obligation. And although I'm humbled to serve as the Department of Environmental Quality's secretary, and it's fulfilling to work for a governor who gets it and shares our goals, I'm also personally chasing fairness, inclusion, and equity because of my personal faith and my upbringing. The book that prescribes the source of my personal faith says, you shall not pollute the land in which you live. You shall not defile the land in which you live. History has echoed that sentiment and shown that strong leadership is what stands between those who are not good stewards of our public health and our natural resources and the communities we call home. For me and the good folks of DEQ, we take our charge to protect the land, the water, the air, and the economy very seriously. And it gives me great comfort to know that the distinguished leaders I've chosen for this Environmental Justice and Equity Board share that sentiment. The good news is we're not starting from scratch, folks. This is in North Carolina's DNA. Again, take Warren County, September of 1982, for example. The people of Afton, North Carolina, stood between the trucks full of waste and the land that they call home. They unapologetically said no to the polluters. They marched for weeks without blinking an eye. They laid down in front of trucks hauling contents no one wanted near their communities or any community. And some were even arrested 
risking their freedom. They sparked a national movement and a dialogue that continues today. And like many voices in our state's rich history of pursuing equity, they took it upon themselves to try to right a wrong and seek fairness and justice, just like those from my beloved North Carolina A&T State University, who also sought equal and fair treatment at the Woolworth lunch counters in Greensboro, North Carolina. Though Warren County protesters lost the battle, they did not lose the war. Environmental groups began to see justice as a necessary part of their mission, and that created a crack in the door. A decade after Warren County citizens protested the dumping of waste in their communities, President Bill Clinton directed federal agencies to take note and act on those disproportionately damaging the environment and the health of overburdened communities. In the tail end of the Clinton administration, first as an EPA intern and then as a proud staff member, I helped support the president's head of EPA's air office in his role in the National Environmental Justice Advisory Council, or NEJAC, and saw firsthand the difference that this group was making. It took nearly two decades, but President Obama empowered NEJAC to address environmental injustice and analyze how EPA's actions affected the poor and the underrepresented. And today, I can proudly say Governor Cooper and I are proud to do our part. Joining those champions for environmental justice by commissioning the North Carolina DEQ's Secretary's Environmental Justice and Equity Advisory Board. No, North Carolina should not have waited this long to appoint such esteemed leaders like my distinguished guest sitting next to me. But we're living in the present. We're not going to live in the past. And we're not waiting any longer. These board members have been tasked with working directly with state government to help us elevate the voices of the underserved and underrepresented as we work to protect public health and natural resources for all North Carolinians. I'm extremely thankful that they're here today, joining the department and helping us to get it right, and that I get an opportunity to take this journey with these wonderful people. But to be more than just a group of diverse voices talking about justice and equity four times a year, to truly create the change that we all are looking for, I need leaders to lean in and tell us where we're weakest. I need for them to help us be more successful in being accountable to the people of North Carolina. I need their help in identifying our blind spots while being constructive and helping us to see what we're doing well and how, how might we improve. I just don't want folks to come in and point out our problems. Quite frankly, anybody can do that. I want people who still know how to dream, folks who don't shrink when the conversations get uncomfortable, and most importantly, folks who will offer bold solutions to help accentuate all of the things that we are doing well. We face a very sobering reality. There is a lot of work that needs to be done, but I believe I have the team to do it. And I'm not naive to the facts, but I'm also not afraid to pursue the truth, which is why I've invited this group in to join us and fight for environmental protection for everyone. That was DEQ Secretary Michael Regan. Uh, introducing the new Environmental Justice and Equity Advisory Board. 
You can hear more of his remarks. I think he spoke for about 15 minutes in full on the SoundCloud page for The Dirt, The Dirt FM on SoundCloud. If you're not aware, we are also on iTunes and on Twitter. Follow The Dirt FM on Twitter. You can check out more of the news and content that we're working on in between each of these monthly programs. Uh, when we come back, we're going to speak with a panel about the North Carolina General Assembly's short session, what is happening with a couple of different bills related to Gen X contamination, and some really crazy stuff happening in Washington, D.C. right now uh, regarding Scott Pruitt uh, and a fight with the press at a perfluorinated compound summit taking place there. So we will be back in just a couple of minutes. Stay with us. You are listening to The Dirt. This is the final segment of the show today. Thank you so much for sticking with us. I hope that you've learned a thing or two about salamanders, if nothing else. We are joined now by a a small panel to discuss uh, some current events taking place both in North Carolina and uh, nationally. And in studio, we've got Grady McCauley. He's the policy director at North Carolina Conservation Network. Hello, Grady. Hey. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. And, of course, Upper News Riverkeeper Matthew Starr. I refuse to leave. Give me a fun river fact. Oh, I studied. I promise. Um, the Noose River has bull sharks that swim up into its uh, to the mouth of the river to have their pups. Okay. That's interesting. So, Not uh, to scare anyone. You're safe. You're good to go. Thanks. <laughs> so... Uh, <laughs> Right now, there is some drama, violence even, afoot in Washington, D.C., of a sort. Uh, There is a convening of a national summit that Scott Pruitt, head of the national EPA, has put together on the topic of perfluorinated compounds. Now, we've talked a lot about Gen X. Gen X is one of these perfluorinated compounds. They're also called PFAS. Uh, we've talked in the past on the show about toxic firefighting foam used by the Defense Department and, and other firefighting units uh, that washes into the rivers. That is a kind of perfluorinated compound. Uh, you may have heard of C8 or PFOA. Uh, they're 1,4-dioxane. There are all kinds of these different kind of persistent emerging contaminants. They're chemical compounds that are being put into the waters across the United States. And so it's been identified as a big problem. They're hosting a summit in Washington, D.C. with a lot of different stakeholders. I believe there is a representative or two from the North Carolina DEQ. Uh, I believe that there is a representative from the Cape Fear Public Utility Authority who is there participating in a panel. Who is not participating in the panel, at least as we speak at this moment, is uh, the press who have been forcibly removed from this event, I don't know, Matthew. Tell me what's going on down there. Yeah, so we're we're just keeping track on this, like uh, on Twitter, like every, everyone else, um, how we get our news these days. But yeah, some um, reporters, some important reporters, some of the head Associated reporters, press. yeah, some of the head reporters for different national news outlets were removed from the session. Um, I'm looking at a yeah. I'm looking at a, a tweet that shows that uh, that the Associated Press is reporting guards quote forcibly shoved an AP reporter out of the building after telling several news organizations they were not invited and there was no space for them at this EPA summit 
on contaminants. It seemed, I seem to remember we have an amendment in our Constitution that uh, protects free speech and press members so that folks can stay informed about what our government is doing. Well, it's certainly a topic that is relevant to most Americans and that certainly most Americans deserve to be informed about. I think, Grady, you were pointing out to me that there's been an update. I mean, this is this is all ongoing as we speak, but it looks as though they have may have relented uh, or clarified their policy. Not sure which, but press will be allowed access to some of these discussions later in the afternoon, it sounds like. Nevertheless, you know, given, given uh, Scott Pruitt's uh, record currently, the last thing they need is a, you know, a fight with the Associated Press and other news organizations. It's um, mind-boggling. But, I, what I, Craig, talk to me about what else we can expect out of this summit. I mean, what was the original plan here? Is there anything productive that's going to come out of this? Right. So that's a really interesting question. And, and some of the background to this summit is back in, in January, February, uh, we learned from an article that Politico uh, broke the story last week um, we learned that the Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry, ATSDR, which is part of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, scientists there have been working on an analysis of a couple of these compounds, perfluorinated compounds, um, two compounds called PFOA and PFOS, and they're some of the ones that have been found around U.S. military bases, and that's partly why they were looking at them. And what they found was that the health goal, it's not a standard, but the health goal that the U.S. EPA has been advising states to use in the absence of better information um, is about 70 parts per trillion and combined of those substances in, in water. And um, what the scientists were finding reportedly, we haven't seen the report, is that an actual health level should be something like one-sixth of that, so much lower if you want to protect developing children in the womb and developing infants. Um, that report would have become public, but um, Scott Pruitt's EPA and the White House um, blocked it and sat on it. And so one of the big questions, and then in the meantime, a number of states have been moving around the country, including North Carolina, to figure out what do we do about these perfluorinated compounds. Gen X is, is a perfluorinated compound as well. What do we do about them? And then EPA announced that there would be the summit this week. It's two days. The first day has a number of, of um, folks from industry and from uh, some nonprofits, environmental advocates that are there, um, limited press, but as you heard, they've turned away other press. Um, they since announced that press, all press will be welcome at sessions this afternoon, so apparently they're learning. <laughs> uh, but tomorrow is closed. It's just the states and EPA folks. And what we're going to be waiting to hear is um, does EPA provide scientific information to the states to let them continue moving forward to deal with the threats from these compounds? Does EPA propose to step in and regulate itself in a way that would block states from acting, which we hope they don't do? And, and um, environmental groups and, and some of the states have specifically asked them not to do that. So that's what we're waiting to see. And, and currently, there's a science advisory board here in North Carolina comprised of different scientists and experts in this field who are, um, among other things, working, hopefully, to uh, come up with um, a goal of, of our own here in North Carolina. Is that right? That's right. So ideally, ideally um, our folks would be able to take information science developed by the U.S. EPA scientists and perhaps by the scientists from the Department of Health and Human Services at the federal level and use that as a starting point to come up with numbers that we need for North Carolina. When will we know? 
You know, um, I think there was some expectation from folks going to the meeting that they would be given some of the science and that EPA would simultaneously with releasing it to the state send it out for peer review by respected scientists that they contract with. And by by August or so, we should have numbers that would be reliable for regulatory purposes. Uh, but we'll see if that's what happens. That's just what folks were hoping they would be told when they got there. I suppose the other element here is uh, what what the legislative body in North Carolina is doing with regard to uh, this topic, perfluorinated compounds. And as I mentioned, they are back for a uh, biennial short session, which uh, generally is used just to tweak the budget, uh, but they're taking up some other things. And one of the things that they're taking up is what to do about Gen X contamination uh, in the Cape Fear and then more broadly across the state of North Carolina. And, you know, this is partly... uh, the result of a series of hearings that a House committee on river quality has been holding going back to the fall about what to do um, with regards to chemors and emerging compounds more broadly. The Senate has a uh, parallel committee. I'm not sure if they've ever have they met at all once once okay. once. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure if they've but the, the House side has come up with a few different types of plans at any rate. It is. It has become an election issue for some of the people in the House side, uh, especially down in the Cape Fear River Basin. There's been a bill introduced that's identical, mostly identical on the House and Senate side, uh, related to Gen X. Um, what is what is in this bill? Right. So, so folks will remember that that um, this issue started when Gen X concentrations and a bunch of other chemicals that are like it were found in drinking water supplies from the Cape Fear River back in December of, of 2016. That story broke in June of 2017. In August of 2017, Governor Cooper asked for $2.5 million to equip the State Environmental Agency and State Health and Human Services Agency, but particularly the Environmental Agency, to deal with Gen X and other emerging contaminants. The legislature didn't manage to act on that, squabbled about it, but eventually adjourned in February, beginning of February, without having made that money available. So the governor had said that was just a down payment to deal with the emergency, but really, after being cut for years running, the State Environmental Agency needs money to be able to address this problem and keep up with its responsibilities. And so Governor Cooper had requested in his budget $14.5 million, uh, most of that, about $8 million of that for dealing with emerging contaminants like Gen X, and about $4 million and, and some change for updating um, the way the the agency deals with permitting online and some money for equipment like a mass spectrometer, that they, a high-quality mass spectrometer that they need. Um, what this bill introduced in the House and Senate parallel versions, the, the House version is House Bill 972, uh, it doesn't do that. It doesn't meet that need. It throws a bunch of money around, but it doesn't give much of it to the Department of Environmental Quality, like a million and a half maybe. Um, it provides them some money to buy the low, the cheap quality of mass spectrometer that won't let the agency do what it needs to do. Um, that looks like a provision that was written to keep the agency from being effective rather than one to enable it. Uh, there's a lot about this bill that looks like it was written to look as though it's doing something but not actually do anything. An example of that, Section 12 of the bill that requires all uh, all folks with a permit to discharge waste into our waters to say by September to identify the chemicals that they're discharging, um, at least the ones that they identified when they applied for their permit in the first place. That sounds like a lot, but in fact, 
The problem with these chemicals is that they weren't identified when the folks first got their permit. So, like, that's an example of a provision that it sounds like it's supposed to sound pretty good, sound like something's happening, but it's not actually making things better. Yeah. And <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, the mass spec that Grady just mentioned, I think, is really important. Yes, they're getting a mass, spectrom- mass spectrometer, but it's it's like showing up to the Kentucky Derby and you're riding a goat. You know, <laughs> you, you got to have what works. Can and you, you get- can. Can you ride a goat? <laughs> <laughs> sure, why not? Maybe a big goat. Slow. Maybe a but, mule or something yeah. might have been a better analogy. Yeah, no, I mean, what, you know, what can you do with a little bit of money to go buy a high-res mass spectrometer on, you know, Craigslist? That's basically what, we're, what they're doing yeah. here. And the $14.5 million, Grady, to your point, that's a modest ask. Uh, Michigan, uh, Republican-controlled state of Michigan recently appropriated $22 million uh, or so to address the same kinds of problems that we're facing down here in North Carolina. So it wasn't, it wasn't an over the top ask. And yet uh, we're seeing, and, and if it's not, if it's not about spending money, you said that money's being thrown around. Where's the money going? Well, so $8 million of it would be, the larger chunk of it would be one-time money. So that's the other problem. Is this money needs to be recurring. It needs to go to the state agency. Because you can't hire somebody for nine months, like somebody with a Ph.D. to do this work that we need done for nine months, and then they're going to be out of work again. Um, you gotta have, you got to know you're going to have it in the future. So one of the problems is the, this bill doesn't have much recurring money, and it's one-time money. But it would send $8 million to um, a think tank at UNC that has some ties to the North Carolina Senate. That's not, it, there may be some good work to do there, but that's not a substitute for doing the work that we need done in our state agencies for government to protect us. That can be in an addition to, not a replacement for. Right, but but the money that really needs to be in there for the agencies isn't in the bill. The other thing I'll say is that although Gen X has been an issue in the Cape Fear, and for folks, and folks are, have, have been really concerned about it on Wilmington drinking the water, um, and in folks drinking groundwater wells that have gotten contaminated around the Kimmore's facility. This is part of a bigger issue of emerging contaminants, of chemicals that are getting dumped into our water in from various sources across the state, not Gen X, but other chemicals. Some of them are um, perfluorinated compounds, like we were talking about before. Some of them are pretty different from that. Further up the Haw River, so still in the Cape Fear Basin, but above, uh, above Jordan Lake Dam, um, there have been... One four dioxane is not a perfluorinated compound, but that's been found in several places in the drinking water supply for Pittsburgh, um, in in the river running past Burlington, and um, the the equipment and the money for the agency to deal with these issues protects all of us all across the state as as well as the folks in the Cape Fear to deal with issues like one four dioxane and contaminants elsewhere. And it's important to note that one four dioxane, I believe, uh, has been linked to uh, adverse liver. Uh, health issues and some other really negative potential health issues that's that's one definitely people should be looking out for and there are a number of these kinds of compounds that we don't even have names for uh that we don't know how to test for that exist out there and we're still learning about i mean part of this is is learning so much about this stuff what uh with with regard to kimors and gen x there's an element to this bill that speaks to the governor's authority uh to shut basically shut them down what is that or not what is that all about well, so the governor, we think the governor already has authority to shut down Kenmore's if needed. And the governor's taken some strong steps recently saying to Kenmore's, basically, you've got to control all your emissions. Because what we found is 
this chemical and some chemicals that that break down into it are being released from uh, into the air from the plant, and then they get caught in the rain, fall in the rain, and they contaminate people's groundwater wells as well as the river. And so um, the Department of Environmental Quality had said, look, chemicals, you've got to control all the sources of emissions of this, or we will control them for you or tell you to shut down. And so that authority already exists. What's in the bill is this very narrow language that could make it hard for the governor to do that with any other plant with any other chemical because it's it's just very narrow it requires there be emissions into air and water and groundwater at the same time um, and it, it looks suspiciously as though it were drafted to prevent that authority from being used in other places rather than to enable it. So it seems like they're happy to make Kim Wars a sacrificial lamb here if it means that they don't actually have to give the Department of Environmental Quality the power it's supposed to have to protect people more broadly from water contamination of you know, others from other sources and other compounds and that kind of thing. Yeah, the, that we think that power already exists, and the real danger here is mm-hmm. does this undercut or narrow it? Yeah. Okay. Well, so uh, what are the chances uh, that this bill? What, what what's the future of this bill? Uh, what are we looking at here? Was it going to be passed as it is? Is it going to be vetoed? Is it going to be tucked into something else? What's it looking like? Quickly. So yeah, it's gone. It's uh, headed next to the um, committee on the environment. Um, so I'll be there. Others will be there making public comment, raising raising these red flags. Um, members of the public are more than welcome to come and speak and, and uh, tell them how you feel and that they shouldn't be playing politics with our drinking water and our air quality. And as far as where this bill is headed, whether it's going to be a standalone bill or be included in the budget, we're, we're not sure yet. And I will say, um, there's a lot of legislators who are, who've been really feeling the need to, to do something decent on, on these issues. So even if you have a legislator who, um, who isn't generally very good on environmental issues, it's worth it for the public to be talking to legislators because they need to care about this. And there is, and I should say, there is also a Democratic bill that has been introduced that would uh, provide the $14.5 million to DEQ and do some other things. Uh, it is largely symbolic, I suppose, because it doesn't stand a chance of going anywhere in two houses uh, led by the opposing party. Um, thank you both for being here. I appreciate you explaining this complex bill to us. Uh, we are officially out of time. So as always, you can continue to listen to the show on iTunes and SoundCloud. Search for The Dirt. Uh, give us a review while you're there. Look us up on Twitter at The Dirt FM. I want to thank you to all of our guests for your contributions to the program today and to the production staff here at WSHA. Please join us again every fourth Tuesday of the month at 12 noon here on WSHA-FM. This program is underwritten by the North Carolina Conservation Network. See you next time.